the rest of you, uh, I mentioned that Nathaniel was confusing me a little bit about the, but I, I'm going to confuse you because your bulletin says First Peter, but the message today is from First Thessalonians. So let's turn back to First Thessalonians from First uh, Peter. You know, I, I've tried to get the sermon title to the secretary by Thursday so they can make the bulletin Friday morning. And, you know, I tried to put together something out of First Peter for this morning like I had said I was going to do, and it all looked like Greek to me. And uh, <laughs> so I ended up uh, going to First Thessalonians, and then it became crystal clear. So uh, this morning we're going to talk about changed lives. Let's not stand yet. We'll, we'll stand in just a little bit. And we'll read our text. Uh, this letter was written by Paul to a church that he had started. And he was only there for about three weeks teaching in the synagogue in Thessalonica. And then the Bible indicates to us that he was there perhaps a few more weeks before he was more or less run out of town by the opponents of Christianity. And he went on to another town to, to start a church there. And uh, a few months, if not years later, he wrote these letters back to the church in Thessalonica. So it was written to them during a time of great persecution. Remember, uh, 1 Peter was written to the same idea of a church being under persecution. The Romans were ramping up their attack against the Jews getting ready to wipe out Jerusalem. The emperor was chasing down Christians to annihilate them. There was a lot of distress in the Christian community and a lot of troubles, but this church was a solid church, even though they had not had much time to uh, begin and to learn and to advance the gospel. And that's one of the points I wanna bring out to you this morning is how they reacted to the oppression and persecution. However, uh, when this church was in existence, uh, Paul described in another letter how the world was at this time. And that other letter is Philippians chapter 3. I have it on the screen if you would follow with me there. It says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. This was a description of the world according to Paul when he was living. You know, we could almost take that description and apply it to our world today. That's sad to say that, but, but it's so true. A few years ago, a man named E.M. Blaylock uh, gave us a quote, and it says this, Of all the centuries, the 21st century is most like the first century. So Paul described the first century to us in Philippians. This man says that the 21st century, where you and I live today, of all the centuries, is most like that first century. Let me say this about that. We find ourselves today on, on the verge of a world crisis, a nuclear war. We can see that could happen almost at any minute. Most of you 
have invested in our stock market here in the United States. We say, well, I didn't, Brother Clay. If you've got a retirement account somewhere, you're invested in the stock market. Okay, and now we find that that is in an uproar. It is unstable. We don't really know which way it might go. We hope that it would maintain, but that's not a given for us. Most people today in our country distrust our government. Either side has distrust of the other side. We find today that drug and alcohol abuse is on the rise. We see scientists today tinkering with our DNA and tinkering with genetics. There's fearful times on our horizon. They had a global conference on the future of the world. The leader of that conference stood to begin the conference with this statement, bad news, the end of the world is coming. Good news, it hasn't gotten here yet. That's not much of a hope for the future global movement, is it, that the end of the world is coming. There is still time for change. The end of the world has not come to us as of yet, but you and I are very close. We feel that, we sense that, we know that, we understand that. This change, however, seems to be the problem that we are facing. The world needs to change, but change is something that we humans do not take very well. We do not care for it that much. We think, as Christians, the other side needs to change. And the other side thinks that we Christians need to change. Therefore, neither side really changes because there's no commitment from either side to help the other side change. So because no one changes, what do we do? We see the church shrinking year by year, decade by decade, shrinking and shrinking and we can understand why. You know, we have done our part, we feel, as presenting the gospel to the world. We've invested in that presentation. We've invited people. We've fed people down here in our fellowship hall. We have promoted Jesus Christ to our neighborhood. Yet, where are they? Why isn't our church full? Because they out there don't see what we see in here. Why is that? Well, a lot of it has to do with not proclaiming the gospel to them. But I believe most of it has to do with them looking at us in our everyday life. And they don't see anything that's attracting to them. They see that we go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the time we do what they do. And we look like they look. And we go where they go and we talk like they talk. So why should they come? Why, why change when we are all the same? And I believe that's the problem that the church is facing today. We think that the gospel message is for the people that are lost and undone. And we are to present that to them and proclaim that to him. But we fail to understand that the gospel message is not only for the lost man. It is for the saved man as well. It is for us to live by. It is for us to show a difference in our life and how we live that life. 
the famous immortal words of Pogo. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Sometimes the church is its own enemy in the proclamation of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that you and I need to learn what we're trying to teach. The lost man needs to embrace the gospel message and be saved. The saved man needs to embrace the gospel message and allow it to change his life. The church looks so much like the world, the world is no longer attracted to the church. I know I hammer on this, it seems like weekly, but it's not me. He's given me the message to share with you. So apparently it's something the Lord thinks that we need to hear this morning. I as well as you, my brother. The gospel is for us. And what do I mean by that? It's something that must soak into me. It's something that must swallow up my pride. This gospel message must swallow up the rebellion that exists in all of us. It must overcome that sinful nature. The gospel message must be presented to me in a way that I embrace it and I allow it to change my life. This gospel must deal with my secret sin and your secret sin. Not just the open sin that we can cover up easily, but the sins that are within us. The sins that nobody else knows. That's what the gospel wants to deal with. That's what the gospel wants to change. If the world sees that change, perhaps like you were drawn by someone living Christianity in front of you, perhaps your neighbor or your family or your children might be drawn to the gospel because they see you living it, not just going to church on Sunday morning. So why would they change? Why would they want to come? Today we're going to learn from a hero church. All right, that's, that's what I'm labeling them today, a hero church. I, I told my Sunday school class this morning, this is the only church in the Bible that is given the description of a model church. You find some positive things back in Revelation chapter 2 about some churches, but you also find some things that they need to do. But here you will find a church that is doing everything right. And so let's stand together and, and let's read about this model church. I want you to turn to First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter one. We're going to begin in verse four. All right, I, I'm going to read the other sections as well, but right now let's start in verse four. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, 
not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Let's pray. Father, help us to see what this church did and what we could do if we just follow their great example. I pray today you teach us that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, in the book of Acts, this church is described as well. In nine short verses in the book of Acts, chapter 17, we read about this church. And we read about Paul spending three weeks in the synagogue teaching about the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he was there briefly after that, not long, and then he left. So in a short amount of time, there was a revolutionary work of God among these people that took place in Thessalonica. They had, in Acts it tells us, there was a great multitude that was saved. You know, the writer of Acts, Luke, is not a person to be known for keeping tally of numbers. He was a doctor. But for him to write a great multitude, we can understand that it was a great multitude of people that came to Christ in that short amount of time. What happened in that church? It says in Acts that men were saved. It says that prominent women were saved. It says that Jews and Greeks were saved. Rich and poor, young and old. All of these coming together at that moment to form a church which brought many to Christ and touched every aspect of the culture where it was living. That's what this church did. They did something unique among churches today. They were able to do this for several reasons, and we'll discuss those in just a moment. The third thing that we find in the book of Acts about this church is that their enemies, the people of the community that were refusing to save or to believe and be saved, the enemies of the cross, as Paul called them, they were on the run. They were losing position. They were being overpowered by the Christian community. They were getting run out of town. So what did they do in the book of Acts? They formed a mob, these opponents. They came to the house of Jason to find this man called Paul. Paul had already departed. They drugged Jason and his other brothers out into the street and threatened them and uh, took them to the authorities of the community. And then this group gave them the greatest compliment that could ever be given a church. You know what they said in the book of Acts? They said this, This man and these people have turned our world upside down. Hallelujah! That somebody would say that about Aaron Springs Baptist Church. That we have come in here and we've turned the world upside down for the message in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what did it take for them to do that, to receive such a compliment? What a thing to say to somebody. 
Well, if Acts told us all that we know about the book or the church of Thessalonica, we would say, man, that's encouraging and that we would be lifted up by their actions in the book of Acts. But that's not all that there is to know about this church. We just read here in 1 Thessalonians some more things about the church. There's two important things here that I want you to see. They became an example church, verse 7. They became a model church to follow. In a short amount of time, three weeks and a few other weeks. No training, no promotions, no business meetings, no committees, no debating, no wondering. But something happened there in that church. And it exploded. The first thing is that they had a, became a, Example church. The second thing is that they exploded. I call them a volcano church. Verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That means that it boomed out from this group of people. The word of the Lord. Those two things are key to the success of this church. Paul goes on to say, I would go to a community outside of Thessalonica miles away, and I would begin to share the gospel with them, and they would say, wait a minute, we already know that. Well, how do you know that? The people at Thessalonica told us. So he would move on to another town, and he would go to the synagogue, and he would start to teach, and they would say, hey, wait a minute, we already know that. Paul said, don't tell me. The people at Thessalonica told you, and they said, yep. People at Thessalonica told us. That's what verse 8 is saying. Look at it. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. I don't need to go and share the gospel around here because you've done it. You're doing it. And it wasn't in Thessalonica It was in Macedonia, the region, Achaia, and beyond. These people changed the map for the kingdom of God. Not just a community. Not just a family of people. They were changing the world and turning it upside down for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now you can begin to understand why they were successful. Amen? Now, let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about how they did these things. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in one of their church meetings? You know, it doesn't even mention a a pastor. It doesn't mention leadership other than Paul establishing the church in a short amount of time. I I wonder what kind of worship they did. I wonder if they did contemporary songs or if they did old mosaic chants from the Old Testament. I wonder what books of the Bible these people were studying to fire them up like that. It's hard for you and I to get fired up reading the Old Testament, isn't it? but that's all they had. And yet they were alive with it. And they were taking that word out everywhere that they went. And they were doing it unashamedly. And they were doing it with power. And they were doing it with authority. 
They had no training. They had no programs. So how did they do this? How did they become so effective? What was their technique? What was their style? Wouldn't you have loved to sit in a worship service time in that church? I wonder where they met. You know, there wasn't a church building. Did they rent a place every week and meet there? Did they meet underground? Did they meet in homes? Did they meet in a large group setting or did they divide up into small groups? You know, we in the modern church today, we've tried all those things. But it doesn't get us where this church went. I wonder what what happened to them. How did they work this out? What was their drive and their motivation? They had nothing that we had today. They did not have the resources, but they had something we don't have. They believed what God said. And I think that's the key to this church. They believed the gospel. This church embraced it as God's truth. Thoroughly, deeply, and seriously. They did not debate about it. They did not have a business meeting to discuss it. They did not say, let me pray about it and I'll get back with you. They embraced God's word to them. And they took it to their community. They did not shrug off what God said. They obeyed it. You know what? That set them apart. That changed their lives. And so when they spoke, people listened. When they went out to share the gospel... People wanted to know what was going on in that bunch down there, down the road from my house. And so they would listen, and they would find out that it was a relationship with the Son of God that changed their life. And so they began to be attracted to that. It gave them a platform to stand on, and when they spoke, people would listen. Now, there's more to it than that, and I told you we would read a little more of the Scripture. I believe sandwiched here in 1 Thessalonians, the action of the church is sandwiched with the reason they were active. And I want to say that by pointing you to verse 2. All right, let's look at verse 2. Why were these people so successful in what was happening? Verse 2 says, we give thanks to you, I'm sorry, to God... Always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the presence of our God and Father. Paul says, we pray for you. Constantly, because we have heard about your faith, your love, and your hope. We all know those, don't we? Faith, hope, and love. That's a common thing among Christians that we all want to possess and live by. This church was really doing it. That's one slice of bread on the sandwich. Here's the other slice. Look in verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, 
That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These people believed that. There was two sources of their strength. Their faith, hope, and love. And then their turning from idols to the living God. To serve Him and to wait for His Son, Jesus Christ, to return. So day in and day out, this affected what kind of people they were. Let me ask you a question. Your faith in God is tremendous, I am sure. And your trust and your desire for Him in godly ways and living. But how does that really affect your everyday living? When something vulgar comes on the TV, how does that faith and love affect that? What do you do about it? When a pop-up comes on your phone or on your computer, how does your faith and your love for Jesus Christ affect what you do at that moment? You see, we haven't allowed the gospel to change us. We've only allowed it to save us. But God wants it to change us so that we become like this model church. And when we speak, people listen because we have a life change that backs up what we say. Amen? Do you see that? Do you understand that? So let's dig into this change uh, uh, as we find it here in uh, this sandwich, so to speak. We go to the first uh, of it and we find our work of faith. Now what does he mean by that work of faith? Well, it means that they have faith in God and that they allow that faith to, to change them. And the second half of that sandwich is the result of that faith. Look in verse 9. We say that you have turned to God from idols. Isn't that faith? When you and I were saved, we turned to God from idols. We, we stopped following the things of this world and we, we turned to God. So turning to God from idols is the same thing as faith in God. And those two combined to begin to change our life. We all have idols, mind you. You may even have some today. It's whatever you worship at the altar of. All right, that's an idol to you. It could be multiple things. One of them could be the security that you find in your money. That can be an idol to you. I mentioned the stock market a while ago. And all of us are invested in that in our retirement accounts, right? And we see it wishy-washy and around now, and it worries us. Why? Because we've invested in it and we have uh, concern with it because it's our future. But I thought when you became a Christian, you turned from your idols and you don't worry about that anymore because God will take care of you. Aren't you more important than a sparrow? And God will take care of you. Maybe there's some things in your life that you need to let go of. That they are an idol in your life. Oh, you're a believer in God. You go to church. You you give your tithe. But the security of your wealth is very important to you. Maybe it's some of your possessions or the plans that you have for your life. 
And you find now that your plans aren't really lining up with what God's leading you to do. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm a believer and I'm going to go to heaven. But I'm going to follow my plans instead of God's plan for me. That's an idol, brother. That's an idol that you're hanging on to. These people laid down their idols. They turned to God from their idols. Amen? A Chinese visitor uh, came to the United States and spent a year here. And he went back home and the people asked him, they said, do the Americans have idols? And he said, oh yeah, oh yeah, they got idols. Well, what are some of them? He said, well, in the wintertime, they worship a big fat man in a red suit. And then in the springtime, they worship a rabbit that makes chocolate eggs. And then in the fall, they worship a big bird called a turkey. That's what he gathered from us. That's what we look like to a visitor to our country. And we say we don't have idols. We do have idols. And the first step of our faith is to lay those down and turn to God. Amen. The second part that we find there is that Paul says they have a labor of love. Look in verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. Now we go down to verse 9 and we see what that labor of love looks like. It's a labor of love which is to serve a living and true God. When you love God, you're going to serve God. Amen? So let me ask you, what are you doing to serve God in His kingdom? Church attendance is not it. That's not serving God. That's worshiping God. That's coming to worship Him. What are you doing actually to serve Him? What are you doing to overcome this world, to lay down those idols, and to fix yourself in love upon the Lord by serving Him? Let me tell you something. It's not painting a building or changing a flat tire for somebody. It's not something that's easy to do. Real love is when you put on the bit and the bridle and you join yourself to the harness of Christ and you plug along in love. That's what loving the Lord is. That's what serving God is. When you lay down the things in your life to pick up the things in the kingdom of God. Serving people, yes, that's important, but I serve them only when it's not very expensive. A labor of love is serving someone when it costs you something. When it is expensive to serve them. When it is expensive to reach out to them. Labor of love remains. A labor of love continues. A labor of love bears the brunt of the situations that you find and you reach out in love, tremendous love, that is serving God, my friend, because He cares for people and they matter to Him. Okay? So, we have faith and we have love. Now, the second or third thing we find in verse 3, in a steadfast, 
steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same thing or idea that we find there in verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Hope has a lot to do with my final priorities. What I want to line up for the day or what I want to line up for my life uh, in following God, my hope in Christ has a lot to do with those priorities that I place in my life and where I place them. Hope for commitment from people. That, that's one thing we all hope for, isn't it? When you got married to your wife or you got married to your husband, didn't you hope for their commitment to you? Of course you did. We all want commitment from people. I, I wanted. I remember working, uh, welding, and, and going to work every day, and I had a hope of commitment from my company to take care of me, to supply me with what I needed, to to pay me a fair wage. And I know that in turn they had a commitment in a hope from me that I would give them eight hours work for eight hours pay. We all have that with different people. We have that hope of commitment from our spouse, from our friends, from our employer, right? And then we also want to be approved by people. We want to uh, show that we are worthy. We want to be, make a difference. Let me say this about this church. They were concerned about making a difference, but it wasn't about making a difference to people. It was about making a difference to Him. They wanted His approval. Amen. They wanted people to know that He was the one who was going to be pleased with them. If we had to find value uh, in somebody, let it be value in Christ that we find. If we want to get approved by people, let it be Jesus that approves us. If we want to be analyzed and, and by living by a standard of life, let it be His standard that we live by, not man's standard. We all want to amount to something, to make a difference. What will be said of you and me at our funeral? Oh, I'm sure my kids will get up and say, ah, oh, he was a he was a great dad. He took care of us. He, he did what was right for us. And, and he saw that we were provided for. You know, my, my obituary might even say that I was a successful person. But you know what? That's not who I want to hear it from. I want to hear from him that I was approved. I want to hear from him that my life made a difference in his kingdom. I'm not after that, but that's my driving force. It's not so much what you think of me, okay, so. but you know we all are like that to a degree. We want people to like us. We want people to approve of us, but it's ultimately what he says about us. You see, the people of Jesus' day wouldn't speak out about him, some of them, because they were fearful of the Pharisees. Because they looked for the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You know, sometimes when you follow God in his ways, it's going to rub people wrong. Even in your church. 
even in your own family of believers. They may not feel like you feel about something. They may not think God's leading this way or that way. And when you try to move that and go that way, you're going to rub people wrong. Do you stop? Do you do what he says or what they say? I want to do what he says. I want approval, but I want his approval the most. You see, that fits you too, brother and sister. That fits you as well, not just the pastor, but all of us. Yes, we wish that all people would think that we were doing well, but that's not always the case. So we start living a split life. I want God's approval, but I also want man's approval. And you know what happens? You end up getting neither one. You go after God and man's approval, you end up getting neither one. you got to make a choice. This church made a choice. They laid down their idols to follow God. They served the living and true God, and they were waiting on Jesus to come back. They thought He was coming back in their lifetime. I know we talk about that, and we think, oh, the world's got to get a lot worse. You know what? He could come back today. He could come back tonight, and you'll be dreaming about the world getting worse while the rest of us are in the rapture, brother. Don't do that. You've got to live like He's coming back today. You've got to give like He's coming back today. You've got to serve and love like He's coming back today. Seek only His approval, not the approval of men. Look at that. Faith love and hope, all of that wound up in Jesus Christ. We have a description today of a great active church. We don't really have any information, no matter how deep we go in the Scriptures, of how they did it. We don't know how they did it, but we just know they did. Why? Because of the faith, hope, and love that those people possessed for Him and for the message of Jesus Christ. What did they believe? They believed everything that God said. They did not debate, they obeyed. They took His message and they took it seriously. Today, the church looks out with the gospel. We look out with the gospel. Maybe today we need to look in with the gospel in my own life. What are some of the things in my life or maybe in your life that you're having trouble letting go of? What are some TV shows you haven't stopped watching? What are some books you haven't stopped reading? What are some people you haven't stopped hanging with? Oh, well, Brother Clay, I'm going to try to witness to him. I'll tell you something. When you take a clean glove and you wipe it like that, the glove becomes dirty. You have to break away from that crowd until the Lord raises you up and matures you. Then he'll send you back. But if you try it now... As a young Christian, they will eat you up, chew you up, and spit you out. You have to mature and grow up and be strong. So what are some places you need to give up? What are some people you need to stop hanging with? What are some things that you need to stop doing? All of these you are holding back from God. You need to come to the altar today and lay them down at His feet. And then get up and go back to your chair. That's what you need to do, brother. That's what you need to do to be like this church and to be uh, approved of God, not necessarily of men. Now, where has your faith failed you that you haven't uh, 
had this work of faith? What, what's happening in your life that, that's not allowing you to work in the kingdom of God? Or how about your labor of love? Or your hope being steadfast in Jesus Christ in His return? Let me just give you a, a little advice here. If you would, every morning, wake up and just talk to Him and say, Is today the day you're coming back? He won't give you an answer. Because no man knows. But he will tell you this. He'll say, this is what I want you to do today. The people of this church got up and went and did it. We pray about it. We read about it. We study. Oh, I'm going to do a Bible study. Make sure that's what I'm supposed to do. Do it. Lay down the idols. Pick up your faith. Obey God's word. And go do it. And then this church, this church will turn this world upside down. Not just around us, but as far as the map goes. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing upon your church here at Aaron Springs. We pray, Lord, that you would honor your name among us today. That you would show us what we need to lay down at this altar. And that we would leave it there and not pick it up. We pray that you give us courage to do that. Let your Holy Spirit move in every heart, convicting us, Lord, in tearing things out, building us up, restoring us. Father, I don't want to stand one day before you and you tell me that I sought the approval of men over you. I pray that prayer for every one of us in this room. We all only have so many days left. Let them be days that people talk behind our back about how much of a Christian we really are. And I pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's